We hope you like this Resurrection Oakland Church podcast. Unauthorized use of any part of this copyrighted material for redistribution or duplication is not permitted without prior consent from Resurrection Oakland Church. To learn more about our church and its charity and mission work in and around Oakland, California, please visit our website at www.resoakland.com. An exceptionally long reading from Exodus chapter 14. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, what have we done? What have we let the Israelites go and have lost their services? So he had his chariot made ready and took his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots, along with all the other chariots of Egypt, with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites, who were marching out boldly. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the Sea of pi Hahirath, opposite Baal Zephon. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, will ne- you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who had been traveling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to the one side and light to the other side, so neither went near the other all night long. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued them, and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He jammed the wheels of the chariots so that they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and at daybreak, the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it, and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground, with a wall of water on their right and on their left. That day, the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. 
And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to to God. God. You can take your seats. We have a very special guest with us today to help us celebrate Black History Month. You may remember her beautiful gift she shared with us during Advent as a soloist with the Oakland Interfaith Gospel Choir. And she's been traveling and singing with this choir for the past 14 years. But she's with us today and I saw her eyes light up when she told me her best titles are wife and mom. So I'd like for you all to give a round of applause for our guest soloist today, Ms. Valeria Scott. Good morning, everyone. Thank you, Pastor Webster, for inviting me. Lift every voice and sing till earth and heaven. Two. 
first service we should just pray and go home because it's all it's all downhill from here uh good morning and welcome to resurrection oakland uh thank you valeria for being here again what a gift to us uh pastor dave well done staying cool calm and collected there uh dave is cool calm and collected i'll tell you i called dave um i was on the way to church one time and it was about 30 minutes before the service is starting, and I was feeling pretty sick, and uh, I called him, and I said, I've got something to tell you. I was like, I'm not feeling well, and I don't know if I'm going to be able to preach this sermon today, <laughs> and Dave said, okay, I'll get something ready. He's just cool, calm, and collected. That's Dave, Pastor Dave. Um, for those of you who are unfamiliar with the song that we just heard sung, uh, it is one that holds special significance. This song was written in 1900 by James Weldon Johnson, who is a, a prominent uh, African-American civil rights activist. He wrote it in response to the continued struggle of black Americans following Reconstruction and in the midst of Jim Crow laws in the South. Uh, this song came to be sung in black churches across the country. For many of these churches, uh, it, was, it was pasted into the back of their hymnals. And in 1917, it came to be known as the Black National Anthem. And we thought that it would be fitting to sing this song today for a couple reasons. Number one, it's Black History Month. And we are celebrating the rich history of various African-American uh, men and women, Christians, who have made great contributions to the church. Uh, Mark Sidwell wrote a book called Free Indeed, and this is what he says in that book. He says, in addition to challenges that normally confront heralds of the gospel, African-American Christians also faced slavery and racial discrimination. Their deep love for Christ and fellow believers and their passion for lost souls made them dauntless soldiers for the Lord proclaiming the way of salvation and the equality of all in God's sight. The church today, we owe a great debt to black Christians throughout the history of this country. So that's one reason we thought it would be appropriate to sing this song today. Here's the second one. Uh, this song was written as a prayer of thanksgiving. It was a prayer of thanksgiving that was based not just on the story of black people in America, but interestingly enough, it was based on the story of God's people in Exodus. Yeah, Exodus. Uh, that's the story we've been looking at the last couple weeks. I mean, look again at these words from this song. We have come over a way that with tears has been watered. We have come treading our path through the blood of the slaughtered, that was the Passover last week, are out from the gloomy past till now we stand at last 
where the white gleam of our bright star is cast. God of our weary years, God of our silent tears, thou who has brought us thus far on the way, thou who hast by thy might led us into the light, keep us forever in the path we pray. This is the Exodus story. And today we come to what I think you could say is the climax of that story, which is the crossing of the Red Sea. If you're new, let me just kind of catch you up on what's happened so far. For 430 years, Israel has been living enslaved and under oppression in Egypt, under the evil reign of Pharaoh. Um, God looks down. He's the God, he's the God of our weary years and of our silent tears. God hears their cries and he sees their misery and he says, I've got to do something about this. And so he says, Moses, I'm going to send you to Pharaoh and you're going to be my messenger. And I want you to tell Pharaoh to let my people go so that they may worship me. And Pharaoh is having none of it. And he's, he refuses. And so what does God do in response to Pharaoh's refusal to let Israel go, God sends 10 plagues. And if you've been here the last two weeks, we have taken two weeks to walk through these plagues. They are God's response to Pharaoh's unwillingness to bend the knee. They're God's response to Pharaoh's determination to perpetuate evil and violence and injustice. And God says, I'm not having this. And so he sends these 10 plagues to force Pharaoh's hand. And finally, finally, Pharaoh gets to the point where he says, okay, I give, you can go free. And that actually brings us up to our passage today. Because as soon as Pharaoh decides to let Israel go, he has a change of heart. He says, this is, this is not a good thing for our economy. We were, we were benefiting from these people. And so he gathers his military and they end up in hot pursuit of Israel all the way out into the wilderness, all the way to the shores of the Red Sea, which is where they are now encamped. Now, uh, there's been a little bit of debate of where this story actually take pl takes place. Some people have said, hey, you know, miracles like this, we know the Bible's not being serious about these kinds of things. And so they tried to minimize it by saying this was not the Red Sea, this was the Sea of Reeds. It was the Reed Sea. And the reason some people say this is because the Hebrew word for red can sometimes be translated as papyrus. And papyrus didn't grow in the deep waters of the Red Sea. It grew in the shallow marshlands of the Reed Sea. Um, I was reading one commentator this week. He told the story about a theologically liberal minister uh, who was a guest preacher in an old Bible-believing black church. And in his sermon, this theologically liberal minister uh, referred to the crossing of the Red Sea. And one of the congregants shouted out, Hallelujah! Praise the Lord! God rescued his children through the deep waters of the Red Sea. And this minister didn't believe in miracles. And he felt sorry for this man. So he kind of condescendingly began to explain to him, you know, this, this was not a miracle. This was not the Red Sea. It was the Reed Sea. They were just in a marshland of six inches of water to which the congregant replied, Hallelujah, praise the Lord. God drowned the whole Egyptian army in just six inches of water. <laughs> there, are, uh, there are all sorts of arguments, actually, 
for why this took place at the Red Sea and not the Reed Sea. I'm not going to go into those today because, because the point is not where it happened. Um, the, 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 this, to really understand the significance of this story, we need to understand not where it happened, but these two questions. What does this story mean and how does this story change our lives? What does it mean and how does it change our lives? And those are the two questions I want us to just unpack together today as we look at this text. Because most people, even people who don't identify as Christian, maybe that's you, even people who really haven't read the Bible that much, maybe that's you, would say, oh, I've heard of this story of the Red Sea. I, I know this story. But it is one thing to know the story. It is an entirely different thing to know what it means and how it can change your life. So let's look at those two questions together. What does it mean? How can it change our lives? First, what does it mean? Um, Usually, uh, you know, we try to do kind of three-point sermons here. Um, That's more more for the preacher sometimes than it is for you guys. Today, I just have one really main point for you. There is one overarching principle uh, of this story. And here's what it is. God saves people who cannot save themselves. What, what does this story mean? What is the story of the crossing Red Sea all about? It is all about this. God saves people who cannot save themselves. And this is so important to understand because many people think Christianity goes something like this. God helps people who help themselves. You ever said that? Have you ever heard somebody say that? God helps people who help themselves. That is not Christianity. I would make the case to you, though, that it actually is every other religion. Every other religion tells you how to save yourself. Buddhism says to save yourself, you cease all desires until you reach nirvana. Hinduism says you save yourself by climbing the ladder of reincarnation. Judaism says you save yourself by obeying Torah. That's God's law. Islam says you save yourself by performing good deeds and living a moral life. And as long as your good deeds outweigh your bad ones, you're in. Christianity has an entirely different message. It does not tell you how to save yourself. It doesn't tell you how to help yourself. It says that God saves people who cannot save themselves. And that's that's the whole point of this story in Exodus 14. Let me just kind of walk you through it. Very quickly, I know these passages we've been reading, they're long. Uh, They're long passages. Uh, Some of you, you look ahead in the worship guide, you know, you peek ahead when you get here and you're like, oh my gosh, that is so long. Are we really going to have to stand like the whole time that that thing is read? That is really long. They're long, they're long, and let me tell you, they're not long enough to really capture the whole story. We did not read verses 1 through 4 this morning, but there's a little detail in verses 1 through 4 that I do not want you to miss. And the detail is this, is that God puts Israel, he leads them into this very precarious spot they're in. It's very interesting that when you look at a map, God takes Israel the long way out of Egypt. There's actually a much more direct route for them to get out. It was north. But instead of taking them north, which was the most direct route, God takes them south, and he, which leads them right to the edge of the Red Sea. Meanwhile, in verse 5, Pharaoh starts to regret his decision, and he, he gathers what is the most powerful military in the history of the world at the time, and he sends them out 
to annihilate the Israelites. Now, just imagine, I mean, they are they're up against the Red Sea. On one side, they have the ocean. And on the other side, they look off in the horizon. And here come the Egyptians. I mean, what are they doing in this moment? They are freaking out. They're saying, we are going to die. We've got, we got the ocean on one side. We've got our enemies on the other side. There is nowhere for us to go. There is nothing for us to do. We cannot help ourselves. We cannot save ourselves. This is it. And it is in that moment, it's in that moment of total helplessness that God saves them. And he saves them by sending a strong wind that pushes back the Red Sea. There's a wall of water on their left and a wall of water on their right and dry ground in the middle. And they walk through. And after they pass through, as the Egyptians begin to chase them, the text says that the water collapses in and not a single Egyptian survived. And some of you, you're like, well, let's talk about that. That was last week's sermon. So if you kind of wrestle with that, Go back to last week's sermon. We talked about how you cannot have a God of judgment without a God of love. But that's the story, you know, and, and we hear this story and what we are supposed to ask is, what does this mean for us? And I think we have a tendency to boil down this story to, to really kind of simplistic principles. Principles like, hey, when you're in a tight spot, trust God and he will come through for you. Or, or maybe even things like, hey, what's the miracle that you need for today? Call upon God and he'll do it. Um, how are we to read this story? Well, here's what's really beautiful about the Bible, is that the Bible is its own interpreter. When, when you're asking the question of how am I supposed to understand this, when you come to the New Testament, it actually tells us how to understand it. So in uh, Luke chapter 9, verses 28 through 36, Jesus is at his transfiguration. And three of his disciples are with him. And all of a sudden, Moses and Elijah show up. And they are watching as Jesus and Moses and Elijah begin to have this conversation. And Jesus starts talking about his coming death on the cross. And you know how he refers to his death? He calls it his exodus. That's interesting. What's that all about? Well, when you come to Hebrews chapter 3, the writer of Hebrews calls Jesus the greater Moses. He says that Jesus, he says that Moses was just a shadow of Jesus, that Moses is actually pointing us to Jesus, that Jesus is the true Moses. How is Jesus the true Moses? Well, he's the true Moses because he delivered us from someone more oppressive than Pharaoh, which was Satan himself. And he's come to set us free from a bondage that is more serious than slavery in Egypt, which is our bondage to sin and to death. And then you flip over to 1 Corinthians 10, and Paul says, hey, um, that whole thing that happened with the Israelites at the Red Sea, that's just a picture of what happens to someone when they become a Christian. He says that it talks about how Jesus has spilled his blood for us to make us new creations and to lead us into a whole new way of life. You see, the main point, the main point of this story is not God helps those who help themselves. It is God saves those who cannot save themselves. 
Friends, if you are in Christ, I want you to hear this. You have already been delivered through the Red Sea. We're not like Israel, waiting on God to deliver us. No, God has already delivered us. We're not waiting on God to win the battle. What the New Testament is saying is he has already won the battle. He has already rescued you. He has already brought you through to the other side. In other words, this is not a morality story. We shouldn't just reduce this to principles like, well, trust God when you're in a tight spot, or be still and God will make things better. And it's not just a miracle story where we say, well, name it and claim it and God will do it for you. Or, wow, look how powerful God is. No, it is a salvation story. It's a salvation story. God saved his people when there was nothing they could do to save themselves. And to be a Christian means that story becomes your story. Uh, This is what in AA is called the gift of desperation. I love that language. The gift of desperation. Do you know the gift of desperation? Let me tell you, that's a hard gift for accomplished, well-to-do people to receive. Um, I've said this before, but uh, I think we, we often get it wrong as to why the Bay Area is such a secular place. You know, Christianity is exploding in other parts of the world. Lots of other parts of the world it is just exploding, but it's, it's declining here. And I think we often think, oh, well, that's because, you know, we are, the reason that the Bay Area is so secular is because we're so sophisticated. We're technologically minded. We're progressive people. We, we're past all these antiquated ideas of God and faith and sin and salvation. We're sophisticated. What if the reason it is so secular here is not because we are so sophisticated, but because we are so successful, so accomplished? The more you have going for you in life, the harder it is to see your need. The less likely you are to actually have a sense that you need the gift of desperation. The less likely you are you say, God, I have nothing If you're here this morning and you are a skeptic, uh, would you consider that maybe the reason Christianity seems so implausible to you is because your ability to accomplish and to achieve is actually filtering God out of your life? It's actually blinding you to your need. It's actually keeping you from experiencing the gift of desperation. That's a hard gift. The gift of desperation is a hard gift for accomplished people to receive. It's also a hard gift for good people to receive. It's a hard gift for moral, do-the-right-thing, justice-loving, socially conscious people to receive. And there's a lot of those kinds of people in this city, people who really care about the Lord, who actually put a lot of Christians to shame and how much they care about the world. See, every other religion will actually say this to you. It'll say, your badness is a problem in your relationship with God. It's actually, it's actually creating a barrier between you and God. But Christianity says something a little different. It says, hey, a lot of times it's not just your badness that's getting in the way, but it's actually your goodness. George Whitfield, he puts it like this. He says, 
before you can know that you are at peace with God, and he's talking about having a relationship with God, you must not only be made sick of your original and actual sin, your badness, but you must be sick of your righteousness, your goodness, of all your duties and your performances. The pride of our heart will not let us submit to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. But if you never felt that you had no righteousness of your own, if you never felt the deficiency of your own righteousness, you cannot come to Jesus Christ. He's saying our goodness is often more of a barrier in our relationship with God than our badness because it keeps you from realizing that you need saving and you cannot save yourself. Do you know the gift of desperation? Do you know what it's like for God to save you when you could not save yourself? Has Israel's story become your story? Let me tell you, that is the best story you could ever have. Why, why, why is that the best story you could ever have? Um, I have a good friend who's a pastor, and he was sharing with me recently uh, a story of one of his friends. Um, this is a guy who had everything going for him in life. He was very successful, very accomplished, had achieved all sorts of things. He was active. Everybody liked him. He was involved in his community. He was involved in his church. And then he was diagnosed with Hodgkin's disease. And it ravaged his body. And he became a shell of the person that he had always been. And one night, he was in the hospital. He was getting treatment for his cancer. And he got up from his bed to go to the bathroom. And as he was walking across the room, he was overcome with a wave of nausea and exhaustion. And he collapsed onto the floor. And he's in one of those gowns that they give you, you know, where something in you is always exposed. And he's He's laying on the floor, spread out, half of his body in the bathroom, half half of his body out in the hospital room, totally unable to get up. And he said that for the first time in his life, he understood grace. He said it had never been more clear to him than in that moment that there was nothing he could do for God. He wasn't volunteering. He wasn't sharing his faith. He wasn't giving in in any way. He wasn't serving. That's what he said. He said, until that moment, I had never understood grace. And for that reason, I love Hodgkins. Hodgkins taught me what grace is. The Christian gospel comes to you and I and it says, we are like that man lying on that hospital floor. There is nothing we can do to merit God's love. It says that we are like Israel, encamped on the shores of the Red Sea. That there's nothing we can do to save ourselves. Nothing we can do except receive the gift of desperation, which opens the door for God's love and grace to flood into your life. Christianity is not about trying harder. Many people think it is. 
It is not about trying harder and it is not about performing for God. It is about being rescued by God. It's about being rescued when you could not rescue yourself. And you know what that does? It leads to a whole new way of living. A whole new way of living. That actually that brings us to this second question I want to unpack today. How does this story change our lives? I think if we understand it, it changes it in all sorts of ways. I'll give you three quick ones this morning. First, you can relax when your faith feels weak. This is such good news. In this room this morning are a lot of people who feel like they walk through those doors with very weak faith. And I hear this all the time. Um, I hear it all the time that people struggle with having enough faith. There's this perception that if I was really a Christian, then I would always have strong faith. And so people feel guilty when their faith feels weak. And often people wonder, well, am I even a Christian? I mean, my faith just feels like it is barely there. Would you think for just a moment about the Israelites on this shore? Think about them as the waters began to part. And there's a wall on the left, a wall on the right, and dry ground in the middle. I'm guessing that as they began to walk in between that wall of water, you had a spectrum of people. You had some people who were like, we knew God would do it. We knew he would do it. I mean, he sent those 10 plagues. We knew he, we knew he would come through. They're like high-fiving as they're walking down the aisle, probably doing the electric slide as they're walking through the, the dry ground. You know, full of faith. And then I think you had other people who were walking through that dry ground going, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, we're going to die, we're going to die, we're going to die. And guess what? They were all equally saved. People with strong faith, people with weak faith, they both made it to the other side. So we are not saved by the strength of our faith. We are saved by the object of our faith. We are saved by the one in whom our faith lies. And what 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13 says is, God is faithful even when we are faithless. That is such good news. If you feel like you have weak faith this morning, you can relax. But here's the second way it changes our lives. Is that you can rest when life feels scary. This is a scary moment for Israel. Think about how afraid they must have been. Terrified. Terrified. I mean, no wonder God says to them, the first thing God says to them through Moses... Uh, I think it's in verse 13, is do not be afraid. I don't know if you know this, but that's the most repeated command in the Bible. Do not be afraid. Over and over and over again, God is saying, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Why does God say that over and over and over again? Because we need to hear it. We are fearful people. And you know why we're fearful people? Because life is filled with scary moments. Life is hard. I sat on the phone this week with one of my best friends in the world. 
And over the last three years, his life has imploded. I, I mean, I just can't even begin to tell you the pain in his life over the last three years. And we just sat on the phone and he just wept. He just said, life is so hard. Life is hard. And some of you, you are in that space right now. You, you are like Israel in that Red Sea moment. You have your own Red Sea moment going on. And I don't know what it is, it's a host of things. I mean, we got people in this room who have been asking God for years and even decades to give them a spouse. And he's not. He hasn't. We got people in this room who are longing to get pregnant and are battling infertility. And it is hard and it is scary. We've got people in this room whose marriages are falling apart, it is in pieces. And you are wondering, how are we ever going to make it? Could God ever put this back together again? Some of us in this room, we have children who are stuck in destructive patterns in life. And it is so hard and it is so scary. we got people in this room who are going, I don't know how I'm going to put food on the table this month. See, and you know, when, when people have a tendency when we are in hard and scary moments to say things like this, we say, don't worry, it will get better. And the truth is that it doesn't always get better. Sometimes it gets worse. Sometimes it only gets more hard. Sometimes you are asking God to deliver you in a way that he does not come through with. And see, the question is, I'm not trying to be down on it. I'm not trying to be like, you know, you know make this a sad morning. I want this to be helpful for you. So the question is, what do you do then? What do you do in those moments? Listen, God never wants us to pretend that scary moments are not scary. God never asks you to pretend that. What God asks you to do is to trust him. And you say, well, well tell me how to do that. Because that, that, that's easier than it sounds. And here's my response to you. Is that walking with Jesus, the Christian life, is learning how to take whatever Red Sea moment that you need saving from right now and to look at it through the lens of the ultimate Red Sea moment that God has already delivered you from on the cross. It is not that God says that hard and scary things in our lives don't matter. It's that he says, sometimes the, thing, the things that we think are the ultimate Red Sea, God says those are not the ultimate Red Sea. When you see that God has actually already delivered you from the ultimate receipt, what is that? It was that he, you needed saving. He saved you when you could not save yourselves. Then you begin to actually have new capacity to trust him in whatever Red Seas you're facing now. I mean, if he, brought, if he brought you through that one, he will bring you through this one. If he fought for you in that one, he will fight for you in this one. Or let, me, let me say it to you this way. There are two ways to live as a Christian. You can either choose to view God in light of your circumstances or you can view your circumstances in light of who God is and what he has done for you. 
When you view God in light of your circumstances, life gets filled with fear and anxiety. When you view your circumstances in light of who God is and what he has done for you and the person and work of his son, then you start to rest, you start to trust, even in the hardest and the scariest moments. Here's a third way this changes our life. You can rejoice no matter what. You can rejoice no matter what. One of the interesting things about uh, this story in Exodus 14 is that as soon as God delivers them, you come to Exodus 15, and the entire chapter is a song. The whole chapter, it's a song. It's Moses and Israel singing a song of celebration, a song of rejoicing, a song of joy. I was talking to somebody in our church after the service just a couple weeks ago. One of the things, uh, one of the things I love about this church is that God has put so many people in this church who have been such a gift to me in my own journey with Christ, who encourage me, uh, who show me what, what faith and trust looks like. And this is one of those people. And I was talking to them after the service, and they said, well, I said, how are you? And they said, well, I got the test back, the test back this week. And they said, no cancer. Praise God. I said, praise God. And then they said, but if there was cancer, praise God. And I thought, I want that. I don't think I have that. But I want that. I want that kind of faith. I want a faith that allows me to praise God and to rejoice in God no matter what is going on in life. Whether things are going well or things are going poorly. Don't you want that? Don't you wish you had that kind of spiritual equilibrium, an anchor, something that steadied you? Because listen, friends, life is hard and it is filled with scary moments. And sometimes life is wonderful and sometimes it is really, really difficult. And what Jesus offers to you is a joy that can, it's, it can like live through both of those. A joy that enables you to sing no matter what, to rejoice no matter what. You know, that's the kind of joy that Jesus had. He had a joy that enabled him to rejoice no matter what, that enabled him to sing even in his suffering. You say, what do you mean? In Matthew chapter 26, there's this little detail in Matthew's gospel. It's the night before his death. Jesus is he's sharing a meal. We're going to do it in just a moment. He's sharing a meal with his disciples. He's telling them how he's about to go to the cross and die for them. And then it says, after they finished eating the meal, they went outside and they sung a hymn. Jesus is looking at his death and he's singing. He's rejoicing. And then on the cross, when Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know where that comes from? It comes from Psalm 22. And the Psalms were their song book. They sung the Psalms. I, I, I'd never thought about this, but this week I thought, I, I think Jesus sung this on the cross. And it was probably a very weak song because he was in his last breath. 
But he is singing, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus sang in his suffering. He rejoiced no matter what. And the question is, is what enabled him to do it? And what's going to enable you and me to do it? Well, Hebrews 12 says this. It says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. That verse is saying that the reason Jesus sang in his suffering, the reason he was able to rejoice no matter what, was because there was a joy that he didn't have on this side of the cross, but that he would get on the other side of the cross. And the million dollar question is, is what was that joy? What was the joy that Jesus didn't have before the cross that he would have after the cross and only if he went to the cross? Uh, was, it, was it the Father's love? No. He had had that for all of eternity. Was it, was it wisdom and power and riches and wealth? No, he had had that for all of eternity. What was the joy? Here's what the Christian gospel says. It says that it was you and me. We were the joy set before him. We were the joy awaiting him on the other side of the cross that he didn't have on this side. And that's what this table is all about. This table says, friends, that no matter what Red Sea you are facing in your life right now, God has delivered you from the ultimate Red Sea. No matter how scary life feels for you right now, your eternity is secure. Your future is secure. No matter how weak your faith feels, your Savior is strong. And he is holding you in his strong hands. You see, and the more, when that penny drops, and it's not just a penny that drops once, it's a penny that has to drop and drop and drop and drop again in the Christian life. It's constantly dropping deeper. But as it drops deeper, you can rest, you can rejoice, and you can relax. And this is why God invites us to this table on the night in which he was betrayed. The Lord Jesus took bread and after he'd given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he blessed it saying, this cup represents the new covenant which is shed in my blood for the forgiveness of sins. Drink this in remembrance of me. As often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are a God who loves to save, who loves to rescue, who loves to take broken, messy, helpless people and to make us your own. God, would you help us as we come to this table today to receive the gift of desperation? Would you help us to see ourselves as needy people so that we could see your great love for us 
your great rescue for us. Help us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.